come to worship the Lord our God. We come to declare Him holy, to thank Him. Easter is a special day. It is the most significant holiday or remembrance or celebration on the Christian calendar. It's the most important event in all of history. I always love Easter. I'm remi- of course, I love spring. It starts to warm up. The sun begins to shine a little bit more. But also, I, I remember my childhood. We were outside earlier this morning talking about what Christmas would... <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> you rascal. I told him we're dividing the sermon up into two parts, and he just looked at me and said, two sermons, huh? Yeah, I know what's going on. But uh, I remember Easter as I was a kid, uh, raised in the country. My dad, a Southern Baptist pastor. Easter was when we got new shoes. Easter was when we got new clothes. Easter was when we had the sunrise service. And we have several memorable uh, events to, to bring to mind as some of those things. Our sunrise service was in the cemetery. Great place to have a sunrise Easter Sunday morning service. Uh, one, uh, one memorable occasion, we decided to... Uh, Put a pin- We, not me, I was a kid, but they decided to put a piano in the back of a pickup truck. Have you ever tried, some of you have, have you ever tried to haul an upright piano in the back of a pickup truck? Uphill? We had several deacons hanging on, but unfortunately, the piano didn't quite make it all the way to the top of the hill. Yeah, you, you, they should have tied it down. There's no question about that. Uh, But it it was definitely a memorable Easter Sunday morning. I remember as a kid the services that we would have and the special events. But I got to tell you, there there was a lot about Easter I did not understand. And as I've talked to people who go to church and as I've talked to believers and as I've talked to people who have not had a lot of exposure to church, I believe that there's still a lot of misunderstanding about Easter and what it is. And certainly in a society that does not recognize the scripture, does not follow Christ. Easter is, is just another holiday. It's a, it's a spring holiday. And so what I want us to do this morning, very simply, is to take a few moments, a few moments and remember the events leading up to the resurrection that we come to celebrate today. We'll be reading some scripture together on the screen, but I want to begin by just kind of mapping out what was taking place. After about three years of earthly ministry, the time had come for Jesus to go to the cross to accomplish the purpose for which God had sent him. Now, Jesus was with his 12 disciples, but there was a bigger crowd that followed him around as well. And he had been preparing them for his death. He told them, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. Of course, they had a hard time swallowing that. That was not their plan at all. It was not even what they had been taught to expect. But Jesus tried to make it clear. He continued to teach. And the time drew near. They come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And you guys know Jesus comes into the city. And the city welcomes him as a king. People are lining the streets. They're waving palm branches in the air. They're singing Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus takes it as his due. He is the king of glory. Come to Jerusalem. He rides in on a donkey celebrated by the people, which further angers his enemies, the Pharisees, who were angry with him, who wanted to see him done away with, and who were plotting against him. That first night, he spends the night just outside of town in a little community called Bethany. He's there with 
Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus has had a pretty rocky time recently. He died and Jesus raised him from the dead. But he goes there and he's talking with them. The next day he comes back into town. It's Monday now. He goes and he cleanses the temple for the second time in his ministry. He continues to teach his disciples and he looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps for them and he's heartbroken for them because they're missing him. They're missing God's plan of salvation that the prophets had told about, that was recorded in the book of law that they would sing songs about, but they were missing it. Tuesday again, he's in the city with his disciples and he begins what some theologians call the Olivet Discourse. He begins to systematically teach through Scripture for his, to his disciples, further preparing them for what is to come. But it's sometime during this day that Judas, one of his disciples, slips away. And Judas goes and talks to representatives of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, and he makes arrangements for financial gain to betray Jesus. Now, while not much is recorded about the events of Wednesday, the middle of week, we know that the Sanhedrin were preparing to arrest Jesus and that Jesus and his disciples were preparing for the Passover, preparing for the Last Supper. Thursday, Peter and John are sent to make specific preparation for the Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples at close of day go into an upper room. While there, Jesus wraps a towel around his waist and he washes the disciples' feet. They are around the table as they are partaking in the Passover meal. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. More about that in a little bit. After that time when they're talking and they're interacting, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where Jesus tended to go, a place where there are olive trees down the house and out to the garden. It's at night. There Jesus and his disciples pray. There's that prayer. If you guys will recall or remember, Jesus says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. As he comes back and gathers with his disciples, you can hear the footprint, the footsteps, stomps of soldiers, of those who come to arrest Jesus, led by Judas the betrayer who kisses him on the cheek. The soldiers arrest him. They march him off. He's taken, first of all, to the house of Annas. Annas was the the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the current high priest. Annas was the previous high priest, but no one's ready for this trial yet. So they go to Annas first, and they develop a strategy. And so there they question Jesus. They try to find a decent reason that they can legitimately accuse him. Then he goes to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the, the people who have been plotting to put him to death, and they accuse him of blasphemy. Blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the name of God. A, a, a crime punishable by death. And so now that they've got their strategy set, they go to the Roman representatives. They go to Pilate. He is the Roman governor who is overseeing all of Jerusalem. And there are Roman soldiers. There's a whole Roman cohort there. He is accused by the Jews and they ask Pilate to put him to death, but Pilate didn't want to put him to death. He questioned Jesus, not wanting to put him to death. He invited Herod. Herod was in town. This is Herod the Tetrarch. And he was another Roman ruler. And so he invited Herod over, almost seeming as though he wants to pass the buck and get some reason to excuse him. But Herod is just wanting 
to see this Jesus. He's heard a lot about him. He's heard about the miracles. He's heard about the dead being brought to life. He's heard about people being healed. And he's like, you know, just show me a miracle. Just show me a miracle. Not much fruit is born from that visit. And Herod says, it's on you, Pilate. Pilate, again, has to step up. The Jews clamoring, the Jewish leaders clamoring for his death. There was a tradition in that day where on the Passover, on this day, the authorities could release a prisoner to the people, one who was guilty but could be released. Well, there was a, a wicked man, Barabbas, and then there was Jesus who was innocent. Barabbas, Pilate, gave them the option, which should I release and which should we crucify? The crowd cried, release Barabbas. What about Jesus? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate washes his hands, as though to say, this is not on me, this is on you. As a matter of fact, he makes that clear, and the leaders say, let his blood be upon us. So he's turned over to the Roman soldiers. This is no picnic. The Roman soldiers begin to mock him, to ridicule him. All the worst images that you can think, these are the things that happen. He's beaten, he's blindfolded. People call at him and say, all right, you're, you're, a, you're a God. You're, you, you can do miracles. You tell us who hit you. They mockingly put a purple robe over his shoulders. They plucked at his beard. They made a crown out of thorns, long thorns, painful thorns. And they laid it on his head and pressed it down. He's beaten with a whip till he's bloody. It's not a pretty scene, it's bad. There Jesus, beaten and bloody, is handed his own cross to carry out of the city. Traditionally, it's called the Via Dolorosa. You may be familiar with it. It's just called a way of suffering. It's the way that you would leave the city from the Bema seat there in the middle of town and go out the north side of town. And there you would find a hill called Golgotha. Now, Golgotha means skull in Aramaic. And it's called the place of the skull. And that's where they would crucify the criminals. Jesus went. He was certainly not alone. And I want to pick up reading in Luke chapter 23, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's warning them of the judgment that is to come. Picking up in verse 32, two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called Golgotha, or the place of the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, 
Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, they cast lots. They threw the dice to divide his garments. And the people were at the foot of the cross. They stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save itself. If he's the Christ of God, he's chosen. if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him. They came up and offered him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that Pilate had put there. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Hey, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your paradise. And he, Jesus, said to him, the thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. See him on the cross, a thief on either side, a mocking crowd at his feet. It was now about the sixth hour of the day. It makes it noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, about three o'clock, when the sunlights failed. Now the curtain of the temple was torn in two and then Jesus called out with a loud voice saying, Father into your hands I commend my spirit and having said that he breathed his last now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, the centurion is the soldier that was at his feet, he praised God saying certainly this man was innocent and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. This is regret. This is sorrow. And all his acquaintances and all the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. I want to pause there in our reading because we're too at a distance. Some 2,000 years ago, these events took place. This is not a movie and this is not some fictional story that was handed down from generation to generation. This is not a myth. This is not a a legend. This is not some sort of philosophical reasoning. This is a historical account of what happened to Jesus. I want us to look at just a couple of things really quick. First, let's look at the man on the cross, Jesus himself. He was no ordinary man. He was not simply a carpenter, not simply a philosopher. He was far more than just some sort of teacher or some sort of moral model for us to follow. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. His death was unique because he was more than only a man. He was very God of very God. He existed before the world. And by him all things were created. We read that just recently when we studied Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 and following. John referred to Jesus as the Word, the Logos. And he wrote, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then he goes on to record that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's Christmas. We celebrate God becoming a person. So he's God, but he's also man. In Philippians 2, it's described like this, that God, Jesus, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto a grasp, but kenosis, he emptied himself. 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Fully God, yes. Fully man, yes. But not like you and I. Jesus was an innocent man. What had he done to deserve the death that we just read about? Nothing. He hadn't done anything. Pilate knew it was unjust. The leaders of the Jews who plotted against him, they knew it was unjust. His disciples who lived with him and walked with him and saw him day and night for years knew that he was innocent. One of his closest disciples wrote this about him and said, He committed no sin and neither was any deceit found in his mouth. He was completely innocent in his suffering, not only to the charge of blasphemy, but of all all sin, an innocent man, God in the flesh, dying on a cross, suspended between earth and heaven. It's, it's easy to be angry at injustice, isn't it? When someone is wrongly convicted, they are innocent, but they are convicted and sentenced. Doesn't it, doesn't it get your ire up? Or what about when there's someone who you know is guilty, they know it's guilty, the prosecution and the defense know it's guilty, but they're set off, they're set free. No punishment. It's easy for us to get emotionally involved in injustice. So who do we blame for this travesty of justice? Do we blame the Jews who plotted against him and accused him and brought him to Pilate, the Roman governor? Do we blame Pilate, the Roman government who turned him over to the soldiers? Do we blame the crowd that cried crucify him or crucify him. Do we blame the soldiers who mocked him and beat him, drove nails in his hands, and drove nails in his feet? I have to tell you the answer is no. When it comes to who killed Jesus, there's only one answer. God did. God did. But that, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Why would God kill the innocent? Why did God kill Jesus? Isaiah makes it clear. Through Isaiah, God told us in a prophecy, Isaiah 53, talking of Jesus, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, we saw him, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 10 in Isaiah 53 makes it abundantly clear. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You see, Jesus, as God, died by his own will and by his own authority. One of the most stunning statements, it's one of the most stunning statements Jesus ever made was about his own death and resurrection. I lay down my life, he said, so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, Jesus says. And I have the authority to take it up again. So why? Jesus died that we might have life. If you're taking notes, this would be a good place to write that down. Jesus died that we might have life. That's what Scripture tells us. In Galatians, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Or 
in Romans, God put Christ forward as the propitiation, the substitute, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. 1 John 4.10 This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There are two things we want to get here. God is just and God is love. You see, sin has to be paid for. Crime has to be punished. There is an associated penalty with a transgression. Isaiah 53 again tells us the problem. He was pierced not for his transgressions, but for our transgressions. He was crushed not for his iniquities, but for our iniquities. As a matter of fact, upon him was the punishment that brings us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. What's the problem? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every man to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the point is, he was innocent. We are not. And while it seems like a miscarriage of justice, it's not. It is God being just. If you had a judge who knew that there was a criminal and knew he was guilty, and you just said, well, it's okay, I forgive you. It's okay. You wouldn't think much of that judge. There has to be an associated penalty with the transgression. Our sin is not small, even though we would like to think it is, that we're okay. But our sin is not small. The reason is not because it's against God. The seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one who is insulted. We sin against God. All of our sins are against God. And this is not trivial. Having been created by God, designed to worship God, called to follow God, what we do is treason. The Bible makes it clear that there is an associated punishment. The soul that sins shall die, Ezekiel. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. God is just. Someone must be punished. God is love. He took the punishment upon himself. Did you get that? God is just. Sin must be paid for. God is love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse from us. That's what propitiation means, substitute. Jesus is called the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He absorbed God's wrath, the just God, wrath of God against sin in our place, in your place, and in my place because of his great love. And that's what we celebrate when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I told you that Jesus had established the Lord's Supper with the disciples shortly before going to Gethsemane where he was betrayed. And what he did was he took bread and he took wine and he created a memorial so that we who have accepted his sacrifice, who have believed and surrendered our lives to him, never forget what the cross is all about. Now we're going to participate in this now. And I want to tell you how we do this. We do this, this is a memorial set for those who have given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is for those who have come to the place where you recognize I'm lost, I'm guilty. You recognize that Christ was innocent. He died in my place. And you put your faith and your trust in him. And so you celebrate his body broken 
in his bloodshed. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer and you're here, you're just uh, investigating, you're curious, that's fine. Just pass this right on to the next person. There's certainly no condemnation and no embarrassment to that. But this is a celebration for those who have experienced the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us that Jesus had his disciples together and on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, I want you to take this and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Gentlemen, they're going to pass out the bread. If you'll take it and just hold it, we'll partake of it together in just a moment. broken. Bread representing that body. Jesus took a loaf and he just broke it and he handed it to his disciples. He had just recently taught them speaking of himself that he was the bread which came down from heaven. Sure in the Old Testament there was manna that was given daily but Jesus says this bread is more complete. Not as the fathers ate and died but he that eateth this bread he that trusts in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ shall live forever. Father, we thank you for the body of Jesus that was beaten, that was bruised, that was broken for our iniquity to demonstrate your great, amazing love toward us. Amen. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Gentlemen. According to the law, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Father God, thank you. Thank you again for the mercy that you show us. It's through the shedding of blood that we're able to join you for eternity. Our sins are forgiven. You have given us a wonderful gift. And Father, I pray that we live for it. Thank you for your mercy, for your goodness. In Jesus' holy name, amen. We left off with Jesus on the cross. Having breathed his last, his followers watching from afar. That's not the end of the story. The disciples thought it was. They thought it was. We have the account in Luke 23 continuing. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Now he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision in action. He was in the minority. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down. He wrapped it in a linen shroud. 
And he laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. The next day was the Sabbath. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, I've got to tell you, one of my favorite words in Scripture is but. (laughs) Because when all hope looks gone, seems gone, God intervenes. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They took spices that they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. An idle tale, a story that was made up. You see, these guys, they were practical. They were fishermen. They had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but Jesus was the one who was doing the raising. Who in the world could raise him from the dead. They were, what, recalcitrant, stubborn, hard to believe what was happened. Uh, he rose from the dead. These were not gullible men. And so Jesus appeared to them in a locked room. Jesus appeared on the lake shore where they were fishing and cooked them breakfast and ate fish with them. This was not the resuscitation of a corpse. It was the resurrection of Jesus, fully God and fully man. And he's resurrected into an indestructible new life. Jesus had finished his atoning work, and the resurrection is proof that God's justice was satisfied. The penalty of sin has been paid, and that Jesus' life triumphs over the grave. There's so much to celebrate here. Listen, this is so good. Jesus rose that we might have abundant life. That's what... He said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I am come that they might have life and have it abundantly. You see, the cross satisfied the justice of God. The empty tomb is the conveyance of that peace, that righteousness, that new life that God gives us. Because of the resurrection, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have a new life. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk 
in newness of life. Also, in Ephesians, even though we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ. For by grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him. This new life has no end. I have a life that does not end in death. If Christ had not been raised, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ or died have perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here's what he says at the end of that chapter. Death is swallowed up in victory. I have life, his life, eternal life. I have the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead working in me. So Jesus died that we might have life. Jesus rose that we might have his life living in us, abundant life, a new life. Being right with God, at peace with God. So how do we participate in that? Well, you have to give up your life to gain His life. You have to give up your life to gain His life. And this is the sticking point for a lot of people. After the triumphal entry, some of the Greeks had come seeking Jesus. And when the disciples told Jesus they were there, here's what He said to them. This is in John 12, 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's telling them, I'm going to the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And here's the point he's making. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here's the point of the resurrection how we participate in life. We're supposed to hate our lives. We're supposed to surrender our lives. We're supposed to deny ourselves. We're supposed to recognize that we have a terminal problem. The problem is sin, and the punishment is eternal separation from God. It's being separate from God right now. Spiritually dead. Spiritually closed from the life and the power of God. But when we become aware of that, that's what the Bible calls conviction. It's what the Holy Spirit does in illumination and granting understanding. When we become aware of that, we respond in repentance and faith. I don't want to be in charge of my life anymore. I want you to be in charge of my life. I don't want to face the punishment for my sin. I want to be forgiven from my sin and washed and clean. I don't want to be distant from God. I want to have peace and fellowship with God and actually be a part of the family of God. And when we repent and surrender our lives to Him, He comes in and He gives us new life. He makes us new. We die with Christ. We are raised to walk in newness of life. Paul described it like this. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, yet not I, or nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's the question. Have you exchanged your life for his? Have you surrendered your life? And put your trust in Him. Here's the promise that we're going to sing about in just a second. The promise is, when we come to Him, there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's no guilt in life. The promise is that death does not end. Life does not end when the body dies. There's no fear in death. 
This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, he's the boss. Jesus commands my destiny. And there's no power of hell. There's no scheme of man that can ever pluck me from his hand. Until he returns, he's coming back, or he calls me home, we can endure and stand in the power of Christ. Christ the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, thank you for the reigning Lord Jesus Christ who died that we might have life and who rose that we might have eternal life, life abundantly. We love you and we're grateful. We pray, Father, that you will make this truth known to our hearts and our minds and that we will respond either in rejoicing and celebration or in acknowledgement that that's our next step, repentance and faith. You move and work in our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen.